Welcome to the 24-week lecture series by Dr. Avraham Giliadi, Dreams, Visions, and Near-Death Experiences Compared to the End-Time Prophecy of Isaiah. This is Lecture 20, Allegory of the Olive Tree. Tonight is a little different from the other lectures we're giving. Tonight is the subject is the allegory of the olive tree, and there's no particular dreams or visions, end-time visions, but it does concern the end-time very much. And what it does is helps define our roles as Latter-day Saints and the sense of Ephraim, who, which is the birthright tribe. So Ephraim has a really important role to perform in the end-time. And the allegory of the olive tree and associated imagery from other prophets on their olive tree parables or allegories help kind of fill in some of the gaps. We'll start with, we're going to go through the whole olive tree allegory, but we'll not necessarily drag it out. We'll go through it quickly just to get an overview of what it is. As we go, we'll also point out different things about it, the main points. My brethren, do you not remember to have read the words of the prophet Zenos? Now, Zenos is not a prophet of the Old Testament, but as we'll see in a moment, Paul quotes this allegory of the olive tree, so Paul must have known of it, and it must have been a scripture at that time. And we have to draw a distinction between the records of Judah and the records of the ten tribes. The ten tribes had their own prophets, and they kept those records on the brass plates, which were also from the ten tribes originally. Lehi and Ishmael were respectively of Manasseh and Ephraim, yet they were among the Jews, or they were known as Jews at the time of Jeremiah, because in an earlier time when the kingdom of Israel split into two, the more righteous part of the people in the northern kingdom came down to the southern kingdom of Judah where the worship of Jehovah was maintained when Jeroboam set up idols in the northern kingdom. And so many of the Levites, most of the Levites, and the more righteous part of the ten tribes came south and became part of the Jewish nation. So we have the house of Israel and the house of Judah, the two nations that were divided after Solomon's son increased the taxes. So there's a little background. So the prophet Zenos was likely a prophet of the ten-tribe kingdom of Israel. And likely, uh, well, we do have that the evidence here that it's on the book of, in the Book of Mormon and on, on the uh, brass plates, therefore, that were carried out of Jerusalem by the descendants of Joseph, uh, who was the leading tribe of the northern kingdom, which he spake to the house of Israel, saying, Hearken, O house of Israel, and hear the words of me, a prophet of the Lord. For behold, thus saith the Lord, I will liken thee, O house of Israel, to a tame olive tree, which a man took and nourished in his vineyard, and it grew and waxed old and began to decay. And it came to pass that the master of the vineyard went forth, and he saw that his olive tree began to decay. And he said, I will prune it and dig about it, and nourish it, that perhaps it may shoot forth young tender branches, and it perish not. And it came to pass that he pruned it, and digged it about it, and nourished it according to his word. And it came to pass that after many days it began to put forth somewhat a little young and tender branches. But behold, the main top thereof began to perish. Now this is the nation of Israel, and you read the Old Testament prophets, and how Israel apostatized, first the ten-tribe northern kingdom, were taken captive into Assyria, and later the southern kingdom of Judah who were taken captive into Babylon a century and a half later. So 
that apostasy would indicate that, that this, the main top, that the main body of Israelites began to perish or they, they began to apostatize. Again, the master of the vineyard saw it and he said unto his servant, now, I'm not sure that there's one servant all the way through this. There may be different servants because there was definitely one particular servant in the end time. But this servant here, you know, could be that person or a different person. It grieveth me. And this, this phrase, it grieveth me, appears about four or five times in, in this allegory. So the, re- the Lord really does grieve when his labors, his, his intense labors are not fruitful. And at one point he weeps. Uh, just we see in the book of Moses where, it, where the Lord weeps and Enoch weeps. You know, the destruction of his people that, he, that are his children. It grieveth me that I should lose this tree, wherefore go and pluck branches from a wild olive tree and bring them hither unto me. I think we have wild olives here in Utah, don't we? Wild olive trees, pretty sure. Take branches of the wild olive tree and graft them in the stead thereof, these which I have plucked off. So he, he plucks off some of the good branches. It's just the main top that's it's dead. But on the side there are some good branches. And these which I have plucked off, I will kill. Oh, sorry, no. The, um, this is the... These are the, the main top. Excuse me. He plucks it off and he casts them into the fire and burns them. That will be the Assyrian and Babylonian exiles. And, you know, the destruction of the temple and many Jews and Israelites were killed in the process. That they may not come to the ground of my vineyard. So those, those things were fulfilled at that time. It came to pass that the servant of the Lord of the vineyard did according to the word of the Lord of the vineyard and grafted in the branches of the wild olive tree. And the Lord of the vineyard caused that it should be digged about and pruned and nourished, saying unto his servant, It grieveth me that I should lose this tree, wherefore that perhaps I might preserve the roots thereof, that they perish not, that I might preserve them unto myself. I have done this thing. Wherefore go thy way, watch the tree, and nourish it according to my words. So he gives specific orders, and we'll see the real, the real importance of doing according to the word of the Lord. Because when, we, when the servants do, servant or servants do that, then all works out well. So he did pluck off some, some of the natural ones, like I said. And these will I place in the nethermost part of my vineyard. In other words, out there in the world somewhere, not in the promised land. Whithersoever I will, and it mattereth not unto thee, and I do it that I may preserve unto myself the natural branches of the tree, and also that I may lay up the fruit thereof against the season unto myself. For it grieveth me that I should lose this tree and the fruit thereof. See this, how much it grieves him to lose the tree. And it came to pass that the Lord of Vineyard went his way and hid, hid the natural branches of the tame olive tree in the nethermost parts of his vineyard. Summon one and summon another according to his will and pleasure. And it came to pass that a long time passed away and the Lord of the vineyard said unto his servant, Come, let us go down into the vineyard that we may labor in the vineyard. So you see, a long time, in, you know, like centuries at least, not millennia, but centuries pass, and then, you know, we come to the time of Christ after a while. And it came to pass that the Lord of the vineyard and also the servant went down into the vineyard to labor. Now, the going down is a, is a phrase that also keeps recurring here. It's like, let us go down, you know, in the temple endowment. You, let us go down and, and take a look at what's going on down there. So they're on a higher spiritual level, and they go down into the vineyard and see what's going on down here on earth. 
And it came to pass that the servant said unto his master, Behold, look here, behold the tree. It came to pass that the Lord of the vineyard looked and beheld the tree in which the wild olive branches had been grafted, and it had sprung forth and began to bear fruit. And he beheld that it was good, and the fruit thereof was like unto the natural fruit. So, now, the wild branches being grafted in happened, again, when the Jews rejected Jesus and they were cut, up, you know, cut out of the olive tree, and then the gospel turned to the Gentiles. Um, those, that, in the time of you know, the apostles after Jesus ascended to heaven, then um, the Gentiles began to bear good fruit for a while. And then again we have the restoration through the prophet Joseph Smith. Uh, so it kind of happens twice that the Gentiles are given a chance to be part of the house of Israel or be part of the tree that bears good fruit. And he beheld that it was good, and the fruit thereof was likened to the natural fruit, you know, from the natural branches of the house of Israel. And he said unto the servant, Behold, the branches of the wild tree have taken hold of the moisture of the root thereof, that the root thereof has brought forth much strength, because of the much strength of the root. Therefore, the wild branches have brought forth tame fruit. So the root was producing, you know, the juice of the tree, and the wild branches were grafted in, and they took hold of that, that moisture and, and nourishment and brought forth good fruit. Kind of miraculous when you think about that. Now remember that the Gentiles are not part of the covenant of Israel. So what are they doing in, in the tree? What business do they have, right? What business they have is that, as we'll see in a moment, uh, some of the natural lineages of Israel assimilated into the Gentiles. So by the time of Christ and the time of Paul, when the gospel went to the Gentiles, particularly through Paul's preaching, beginning with Paul's preaching, then, by that time, there were assimilated Israelites out there, and so that kind of gave justification for the gospel to be taken to, to the Gentiles, where some of them were part Israelite. And that's a really important thing that some assimilated because then it gives kind of the whole world, all of humanity, a chance to come into the house of Israel on, on legal grounds, so to speak, on legitimate grounds. Because the gospel, is, the gospel is a covenant blessing of the house of Israel. It's not a covenant blessing. The Lord never made a covenant blessing with the Gentiles, so it doesn't belong to the Gentiles. It's only by virtue of the house of Israel that the Gentiles have the gospel and the commandments. Now, if he had not grafted in these branches, the tree thereof would have perished. And now, behold, I shall lay up much fruit, which the tree thereof has brought forth, and the fruit thereof I shall lay up against the season unto mine own self. And it came to pass the Lord of the vineyard said unto the servant, Come, let us go to the nethermost parts of the vineyard. And behold, if the natural branches of the tree have not brought forth much fruit also, that I may lay up of the fruit thereof against the season unto mine own self. And it came to pass that they went forth, whither the master of the Lord had hid the natural branches of the tree. And he said unto the servant, Behold these, and he beheld the first, that it had brought forth much fruit, and he beheld also that it was good. Now, this hiding of these natural branches by the Lord of the vineyard is indicative of you know, the dispersion of Israel when the Gentiles received the gospel. It was because the house of Israel had rejected it for the most part. But he took some of them, like Lehi, to the promised land of, of the North and South America so that their descendants could multiply there. But there were many migrations in the time of Lehi. There are records of you know, Jews going down through into Yemen and crossing over from Yemen down into East Africa and, and gene studies have found 
black Jews there, and also in India and many other places of the world, um, the House of Israel has been scattered, including the ten tribes in the land, in the land northward or eastern and western Europe. And he said unto the servant, Take of the fruit thereof and lay it up against the season, that I may preserve it unto mine own self. For behold, said he, this long time have I nourished it, and it brought forth much fruit. And it came to pass that the servant said unto his master, How comest thou hither to plant this tree, or this branch of the tree? For behold, it was the poorest spot in all the land of thy vineyard. And the Lord of the vineyard said unto him, Counsel me not. Aha, counsel me not. Do we sometimes counsel the Lord, or do we want to put him into our little box the way we think of him? No, our quest should be to take his counsel, not to counsel him. But sometimes we are so wise in ourselves and so prideful and assume so many things that we tend to make the Lord fit our, our paradigm instead of the other way around. The Lord has many secrets and many surprises that you would not believe unless you're open to them and progress that you may, he may teach you these things. Counsel me not. I knew it was a poor spot of ground. Wherefore I said unto thee, I have nourished it this long time, and thou beholdest that it has brought forth much fruit. And it came to pass that the Lord of Vineyard said unto his servant, Look hither, behold, I have planted another branch of the tree also. This is the second one. And thou knowest that this spot of ground was poorer than the first. Imagine a place like that, maybe Eastern Europe or Africa, or who knows. But behold, the tree, I have nourished it this long time, has brought forth much fruit. Therefore gather it and lay it up against the season, that I may preserve it unto mine own self. And it came to pass the Lord of the vineyard said again to his servant, Look hither, and behold, another branch also, which I have planted. Behold, that I have nourished it also, and has brought forth fruit. He didn't say good fruit. He said fruit this time. And he said unto the servant, Look hither, and behold the last, which is the third, the same one. Behold, this I have planted in a good spot of ground, and I have nourished it this long time, and only part of the tree has brought forth tame fruit, and the other part of the tree has brought forth wild fruit. Later on, we find that this, is, this tree was planted in the, the land choice above all other lands, which is the land of America, identified as such in other scriptures. And that, so this tree would refer to the Lamanites bringing forth uh, bad fruit and the, the Nephites bringing forth good fruit. This is the third, branch, the third tree or third branch. Behold, I have nourished this tree like unto the others. It came to pass, <clears throat> like unto the others means that... You know, the Lord appeared to the, to the Nephites, so why would not he have appeared also to the other descendants of the other natural branches, those two areas? Very likely he did, and we'll have records of us someday. It came to pass that the Lord of the vineyard said unto his servant, Pluck off the branches that have not brought forth good fruit, and cast them into the fire. And behold, but behold, the servant said unto him, Let us prune it, dig it about, and nourish it a little longer, that perhaps it may bring forth good fruit unto thee, that thou canst lay it up against the season. It came to pass that the Lord of the vineyard and his servant, the servant of the Lord of the vineyard, did nourish all the fruit of the vineyard. And it came to pass that a long time passed away. And the Lord of the vineyard said unto his servant, Come, let us go down into the vineyard, that we have, may labor in the vineyard. So think of this now as the time of the Gentiles, and they go... They give it another chance, so to speak, like as in the time of Joseph Smith. Because the Gentiles, after the apostles, apostatized and started bringing forth bad fruit. But at the restoration of the gospel, they were given a second chance to bring forth good fruit. That's why the scriptures say, The Lord is merciful unto the Gentiles, 
He's way merciful unto us. Come, let us go down into the vineyard, that we may labor again in the vineyard. For behold, the time draweth near, and the end soon cometh. So now we're approaching the end time of the world, um, which is our day. Wherefore, I must lay up fruit against the season unto mine own self. I came to pass the Lord of the vineyards, and the servant went down into the vineyard, and they came to the tree whose natural branches had been broken off, and the wild branches had been grafted in. And behold, all sorts of fruit had come from the tree. So even after the natural branches were grafted in, brought tame fruit for a while, in the end, they just went wild again. The wild branches brought forth wild fruit. And behold, all sorts of fruit had come from the tree. It came to pass that the Lord of the vineyard did taste of the fruit, every sort according to its number. So there were different kinds of fruit, and the Lord of the vineyard said, Behold, this long time have you nourished this tree, and I have laid it up unto myself against a season much fruit through, through the restoration of the gospel, and through the, you know, from the time of Paul, and also the restoration through the prophet Joseph Smith. But behold, this time it has brought forth much fruit, and there was none of it which is good. So good and evil are covenant terms that mean covenant blessing and covenant curse or covenant keeping and covenant breaking. So none of it is any good and it's quite alien to the whole scheme of things, to the gospel. And behold, there's all kinds of bad fruit and it profited me nothing, notwithstanding all our labor, and now it grieveth me that I should lose this tree. And the Lord of the vineyard said unto the servant, What shall we do unto the tree that I may preserve again good fruit thereof unto mine own self? So he's testing the servant with his question. Because the Lord, Lord's not going to do everything himself, as you'll see. The servant really comes to the fore and, and uh, makes a really good suggestion. The servant said to the master, Behold, because thou didst graft in the branches of a wild olive tree, they have nourished the roots, they are alive, and they have not perished. Wherefore thou beholdest that they are good. So the roots are good. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. And it came to pass that the Lord of the vineyard said unto his servant, The tree profiteth me nothing, and the roots thereof profit me nothing, so long as it shall bring forth evil fruit. So there the fruit is described as evil fruit. Nevertheless, I know that the roots are good, and for my own purpose I have preserved them. And because of their much strength, they have hitherto brought forth the wild branches, from the wild branches, good fruit. And this is the time that we're living in right now. Because what happens next is the restoration of the house of Israel, where the natural branches are grafted back into the tree. So this is the prelude to the house of Israel, the Jews, the ten tribes, and Lehi's descendants coming back into the olive tree. So this is the situation today. And so we should be asking ourselves, well, evil fruit? What evil fruit? And let's get our act together, right? Clean up our act. But behold, the wild branches have grown and have overrun the roots thereof because of that the wild branches have overcome the roots thereof, it has brought forth much evil fruit. Now, it's kind of wordy in the English, but in the Hebrew, it's not so wordy at all. It's much more concise. You know, it's like I said, one word can, I mean, five words in English can be one, one word in Hebrew. And because it has brought forth so much evil fruit, now it keeps reiterating this is evil fruit three times. Now behold is that it bringeth to, beginneth to perish. So actually what happens is things start to disintegrate and, and things are really in flux and things are in doubt. And so this, this is where it's drifting. And it will soon become ripened. Ripened, that means ripened in iniquity, so to speak, when 
there's a turning point, and there's no, no further it can go. It's done its thing, and it's, something new has to happen. And soon it will be ripened, become ripened, and it may be cast into the fire. And we know that the fire is coming, the day of burning shall burn like a furnace. Oven, oven is a mistranslation. The day will burn like a furnace. So that's the destruction of the earth by fire. And why, does it, why is the earth destroyed by fire? Because it begins right here. Because of the apostasy of God's own people. And that's not very good news, is it? Except we should do something for it to preserve it. Ah, so there is an escape plan. There is a, a redemptive part to this. I came to pass the Lord of the vineyard said unto his servant, Let us go down into the nethermost parts of the vineyard. Behold, if the natural branches have also brought forth evil fruit. I came to pass that they went down to the nethermost parts of the vineyard. It came to pass that they beheld the fruit of the natural branches that also become corrupt. Yea, the first and the second and also the last. So there are three main branches. The Jews, the ten tribes, and Lehi's descendants. It's also in Isaiah chapter 19, at the end of chapter 19, there are three categories of Israel. Go into the millennium. And they had all become corrupt, and the wild fruit of the, of the last had overcome the, that part of the tree which had brought forth good fruit. Because the Lamanites eventually destroyed the Nephites when they apostatized. Even that the branch had withered away and died. It came to pass that the Lord of the vineyard wept and said unto his servant, what could I have done more for my vineyard? Now there's also other parables or allegories of the vineyard such, such as in Isaiah chapter 5 uh, where this very phrase is also used. What could I have more, done more for my vineyard? The Lord has done his part to the letter and it is his, it is his children or his people who, who failed. Behold, I knew that all the fruit of the vineyard save it were these had become corrupted. And now these, which have once brought forth good fruit, have also become corrupted. And now all the trees of my vineyard are good for nothing, save to be hewn down and cast into the fire. And behold, this last, whose branch hath withered away, I did plant in a good spot of ground. Yea, even that which was choice unto me above all other parts of the land of my vineyard. So that would be the Americas, and that would be the Lamanites and Nephites. And thou beheldest that I also cut down that which cumbered this spot of ground, that I might plant this tree in the stead thereof. So that would be the, the Jaredites. The Jaredites were taken out because they became wicked and corrupted and the Lord destroyed them or they destroyed themselves as a consequence of their wickedness. And then the Nephites were able to come in, the Lamanites or Lehi's descendants, and, um, and replace them in this land. And thou beheldest that a part thereof brought forth good fruit and a part thereof brought forth wild fruit, the Nephites and Lamanites, because I plucked not the branches thereof and cast them into the fire, behold, they have overcome the good branch that it hath withered away. And now, behold, notwithstanding all the care which we have taken of my vineyard, the trees thereof have become corrupted, that they bring forth no good fruit. And these I had hoped to preserve, to have laid up fruit thereof against the season unto mine own self. That behold, they have become like unto the wild olive tree, they are of no worth but to be hewn down and cast into the fire, and it grieveth me that I should lose them. So he's ready to give up. He's done all, he's, he's exerted himself to the utmost and still hasn't helped. Have you ever raised children that have gone astray and no matter what you do, what you've done for them, they're determined to. What could I have done more in my vineyard? Have I slackened my hand that I have not nourished it? 
Nay, I have nourished it, and I have digged about it, and I have pruned it, I have dunged it, <clears throat> I have stretched forth my hand almost all the day long, and the end draweth nigh. So now we're near the very end of this whole sequence. And how did he prune it and dung it and so forth? Well, he sent prophets right, and angels to minister to the people, to different dispensations, to renew his covenant with them, and prophets to call them to repentance. It grieved me that I should hew down all the trees of my vineyard and cast them into the fire that they should be burned. Who is it that has corrupted my vineyard? Aha, uh -huh, so here is the first mention that there might be somebody at work in the vineyard to cause all of this. And who do you think that might be? That old devil, right? He's always doing his thing to destroy the work of the Lord, to sow the bad seed and all that kind of thing. It came to pass that the servant said unto his master, Is it not the loftiness of thy vineyard? Have not the branches thereof overcome the roots which are good? Now, you have to consider that the traditional sin of Ephraim was pride and also drunkenness. The pride of Ephraim, where he just assumes things. Like the scriptures say, they think they know of themselves, speaking of the Gentiles, concerning the scriptures. They put an interpretation of it, they think they know of themselves. Pretty soon, everybody believes it's gospel, and don't you tell anybody otherwise, because it was, it was spoken by so-and-so, who's you know, somebody really important, we think. Is it the loftiness of thy vineyard and have the branches, not the branches thereof, overcome the roots which are good? So the roots, the roots are good, and if you would receive the nurture of the roots according to the proportion that is given us and keep things in balance, in perspective, then the branches will not get lofty and not take strength to themselves. Because the branches overcome the roots thereof because they grew faster than the strength of the roots, taking strength unto themselves. In other words, assuming they have authority and just you know, vaunting that authority rather than turning to the Lord and doing things according to his word. Behold, I say, is this not the cause that the trees of thy vineyard have become corrupted? I came to pass that the Lord of the vineyard said unto his servant, Let us go to and hew down the trees of the vineyard and cast them into the fire, that they shall not come to the ground of my vineyard. Now, do you think that the Lord of the vineyard knew when he said that that he really did intend to do that? But wasn't he also testing his servant here? Remember when Moses, when, when the Israelites who came out of Egypt, remember? They worshipped the golden calf. They built this calf and, and started worshipping it, the golden calf. And when Moses came down from the mountain, there they all were in sexual orgies and what have, they, what have you. They'd gone totally crazy. And their slave mentality had not prepared them for these major things, these major revelations from God. And so the Lord said to Moses, let me wipe them out. I'll start with you. Just like he started with Abraham, I'll start with Moses. All over again. Plan B or plan C. And what did Moses say? God forbid that you should do that and all the nations see what you've done to Israel. Take my name out of the book of life um, rather than do that. So Moses was willing to offer himself as a sacrifice. He was now a translated being, so he had power over the elements. And so to have his name taken out of the book of life meant that he would lose all the progress they had made and have to start all over again through all the labors and sufferings and afflictions and great works that he did. He'd have to give it all up. 
and start a new cycle, so to speak. And, and so that was, that was the Lord testing Moses. And so the Lord said, okay, um, we'll, just, we'll just let them wander around the wilderness for a while until they all die off. Because he had to, he, he had to not let them come to the promised land. The promised land was a covenant blessing for those who kept the terms of the covenant, which are the Ten Commandments and all the commandments of the Lord. So he couldn't let them into the promised land, so he just waited until they all perished, except for two. Who were they? Caleb and Joshua. Thank you. Yeah. So they inherited the promised land. So there you have Moses offering himself an offering, and, and that is what the servant does here. He, he's a proxy savior to his people, and he has to pay a price for that. As we see in the book of Isaiah, the servant is marred and then healed. He's marred beyond human likeness, disfigured. So no one, is this, who is, what is that? So you couldn't even recognize it as a human being. And that's the price the servant pays. But all of these servants that turn up after the main servant all pay a heavy price. It's what Spencer calls the fellowship of the suffering of Christ. The real name of it is the fellowship of Christ. But to, be, to become that, to be part of that, you have to go through a descent phase of suffering. So they call it, the interim name is the Fellowship of the Suffering of Christ. And that's what all proxy saviors go through. That's their descent phase on that very high spiritual level that Moses and Elijah and others obtained. The servant said unto the Lord of the vineyard, Spare it a little longer. And the Lord said, Yeah, I'll spare it a little longer, and if it grieveth me that I should lose the trees of my vineyard. Wherefore, let us take of the branches which, which I have planted in the nethermost part of my vineyard, let us graft them into the tree from whence they came. And let us pluck from the tree those branches whose fruit is most bitter and graft in the natural branches of the tree in the stead thereof. So thank God there were a few natural branches. And this is a theme of Isaiah, that there are only a few that are left. There, as we'll see next time, the next time lecture will be on the Gentiles who go two ways. The Gentiles go two ways. In other words, the descendants of Ephraim go two ways. And... So some become really bitter in the end time and fight against Zion. And others repent and become saviors to the house of Israel. And graft in the natural branches in the stead thereof, and this will I do that, I'm, that the tree may not perish, that perhaps I may preserve unto myself the roots thereof for mine own purpose. Behold, the roots of the natural branches of the tree, which I have planted whithersoever I would, are yet alive. Wherefore, that I may preserve them also for my own purpose, I will take of the branches of this tree and graft them in unto them. I will graft in unto them the branches of their mother tree, that I may preserve the roots also into my own self, <clears throat> that when they shall be sufficiently strong, perhaps they may bring forth good fruit unto me, that I may yet have glory in the fruit of my vineyard. When they are sufficiently strong, they bring forth good fruit. So the interim phase, when they are just barely grafted in, is a really tender phase when they don't bear good fruit. And so those who do the grafting, they have to really nurture them very carefully. And, and they have to be proxy savers to them because they're not able to be proxy savers for themselves at that point. So when, in, the Latin, in the end time, when you see the Jews of the Ten Tribes and Lehi descendants come into the covenant, come into the gospel en masse, it will be a very tender phase for them. And... There'll be much apostasy among us on the one hand, and they'll be learning the gospel, but they have to be tenderly phased in, so to speak, into the gospel, like new converts. 
until they become sufficiently strong to be their own saviors. I mean, saviors in a temporal sense. So the, the servants who do the grafting, they have to be their protectors. And we'll see that in a moment because that's what the role of kings and queens are. And it came to pass that they took from the, that, from the natural tree, which had become wild, and grafted into the natural trees, which also had become wild. And they also took of the natural trees, which had become wild, and grafted into their mother tree. But, you know, these are just few. These, comparatively to, the, to, the, to the, all the descendants of Israel, these are relatively very few. And they also took of the natural trees, which had become wild, and grafted into their mother tree. And the Lord of the vineyard said unto his servant, Pluck not the wild branches from the trees, save it be those which are most bitter, and in them you shall graft in them, in the place of them, you shall graft in according to that which I have said. And we will nourish again the trees of my vineyard, and we will trim up the branches thereof, and we will pluck from the trees those branches which are ripened, that is, in iniquity, that must perish, and cast them into the fire. So at the very time of this restoration of the house of Israel, there's a fire going on. So you have deliverance on the one hand and destruction on the other as we mentioned before. That is the pattern of the end time. And this I do, that perhaps the roots thereof may take strength because of their goodness, the goodness of the roots, and because of the change of the branches, or the interchange, that the good may overcome the evil. And because that I have preserved the natural branches and the roots thereof, that I have grafted in the natural branches again to their mother tree, and have preserved the roots of their mother tree, that perhaps the trees of my vineyard might bring forth again good fruit, that I may have joy again in the fruit of my vineyard. So the end product, or the end is joy. And the joy is not just the Lord's, but all those who are involved in this end time process. That perhaps I may rejoice exceedingly that I have preserved the roots and the branches of the first fruit. So, you know, it would be a dismal picture if, if things, if the apostasy and the evil fruit were just allowed to continue and continue. There would be no joy in that. So the Lord intervenes in history to bring about good to us. Even when we make so many bad choices and things go really awry, and we're, it's nothing but covenant curse everywhere. Thank God there are a few who listen. Because of them, things take a better turn. Wherefore, go to and call servants that we may labor diligently with our might in the vineyard, that we may prepare the way. Prepare the way for what? Well, this this is a phrase used often preparing the way for the coming of the Lord. So, prepare the way. So, it, you know, this, this allegory has all these phrases from other parts of the scriptures that they just drop in there. And so you, you start making these connections with these other scriptures. That I may bring forth again the natural fruit, which natural fruit is good and the most precious above all other fruit. Most precious above all other fruit. Does that remind you of the tree of life, the fruit of the tree of life, which you discussed last week? Most precious above all other fruit, most joyous to the soul. So what's going on now is that when this one servant comes along, the Lord, and this, the tree is full of fruit, none of it any good, the Lord's response is to appoint this one servant, and he calls other servants to the task. To the task of rabbit. And those servants, in this allegory, are the same servants we see in the book of Isaiah once the one servant comes along. And those other servants are also saviors of men. And also in the book of Revelation, we see the 144,000 servants are sealed with the Father's name on their foreheads, which indicates translation as the three Nephites 
who were also um, ascended to the Father's throne, and uh, the same servants. Oh, oh, the angel from the east, of course. Thank you. The angel from the east is the servant who comes from the east in the book of Isaiah. Wherefore, let us go to and labor with our might this last time. Behold, the end draweth nigh, and this, and this is for the last time that I shall prune my vineyard. Graft in the branches, begin at the last, that they may be first, that the first may be last. And dig about the trees. Now, that's an important phrase that appears all through the scriptures also. The first will be last, and the last will be first. So the gospel is, you know, is given to the Jews because they're the other descendants of natural branches, and they apostatize, and then it goes to the Gentiles. And in the end time, that situation reverses itself. Uh, it's given again to the Gentiles, and it goes back to the Jews. So the Gentiles have two chances. And dig about the trees, both old and young, the first and the last, and the last and the first, that all may be nourished once again for the last time. So this is the last days. Achrit hayamim. Achrit hayamim means, really it means the end time. Wherefore, dig about, doesn't really mean, it doesn't really mean the latter days. We think of the latter days as from, as from the time of Joseph Smith, but really, that's not really the Hebrew definition. It's the, it's the very end that precedes the coming of the Lord. When Israel is restored, that's the context in which Achrit HaYamim appears in all through the Hebrew prophets. Wherefore, dig about them and prune them and dung them once more for the last time before the end draweth nigh. If it so be that these last grafts shall grow and bring forth the natural fruit, then shall you prepare the way for them, there's the word prepare the way again, that they may grow. And as they begin to grow, you shall clear away the branches which bring forth bitter fruit according to the strength of the good and the size thereof. So it's not, you know, it's not, it happens all at once, suddenly, no. It's a gradual process. And so that there's balance between the nourishment of the roots and the branches being grafted in and some being cut off. And you shall not clear away the bad thereof all at once. There you go. Lest the roots thereof should be too strong for the graft, and the graft thereof shall perish. And I lose the trees of my vineyard. If you know horticulture, then you know that there's so much... It's, not, it's a science, of course. It's an art form. For it grieveth me that I should lose the trees of my vineyard, wherefore ye shall clear away the bad according as the good shall grow, that the root and the top may be equal in strength, until the good shall overcome the bad, and the bad be hewn down and cast into the fire. They cumber not the ground of my vineyard, and thus will I sweep away the bad out of my vineyard. And this word, the sweep, appears also throughout the scriptures. Like, the Lord is going, in Isaiah chapter 14, the Lord is going to sweep Babylon, the broom of destruction. In the Book of Mormon, you have Shiz in the Jaredite account. Shiz, he sweepeth the earth before him. He destroys everything in his path. So a sweep, the sweeping is, is a term that everything is swept clear, gone, like the Jaredites swept out of the land. And the branches of the natural tree will I graft in again unto the natu- natural tree, and the branches of the natural tree will I graft into the natural branches of the tree, and thus will I bring forth, bring them together again, they shall bring forth the natural fruit, and they shall be one. Aha, so this oneness is also part of the plan, of, because he wants all of us to be one in him, one in the Father through Christ. And so this is a big theme of Christ in the Gospel, particularly John chapter 17, that the disciples may be one with him as he's one with the Father.
and the bad shall be cast away, even out of all the land of my vineyard. But they totally disappear out of it from his earth. For behold, only this once will I prune my vineyard. And it came to pass that the Lord of the vineyard sent his servant, and the servant went and did as the Lord had commanded him, and brought other servants, and they were few. Well, 144,000 is a few comparative to the, the billions on the earth, right? And the Lord of the vineyard said unto them, Go and labor in the vineyard with, all your, with your might, for behold, this is the last time they shall nourish my vineyard, for the end is nigh at hand, and the season speedily cometh. And if ye labor with your might, with me, ye shall have joy in the fruit, which I shall lay up unto myself against the time which will soon come. It came to pass that the servants did go and labor with their mites, and the Lord of the vineyard labored also with them. So during this restoration of the house of Israel, the Lord is already on the earth. And you see that in Spencer's book, right? When these calamities happen in Salt Lake City because of the consequence, because of the consequences of the bad fruit and the covenant curses that come upon the people. And uh, there's the Lord when he finally appears in that assembly in Grubby's, right? He'd been, he'd been in Grubby's helping clean up all the disaster and rescuing people. So he took upon himself the curses, our curses. And there's a graphic example of his doing so. And it will require all their might because it's a huge work. And it's, like it says, there's only a few to do it. And they did obey the commandments of the Lord of the vineyard in all things. See, that that's total obedience to the Lord to do things his way. It's like in the army, you have to obey the Lord, obey the, the sergeant or whoever it is, you know, in every situation, to the letter. And there began to be the natural fruit again in the vineyard, and the natural branches began to grow and thrive exceedingly, and the wild branches began to be plucked off and cast away. So what does that tell you about the current wild branches that are grafted in? There's no more wild branches, guys. And to be cast away, and they did keep the root and the top thereof equal according to the strength thereof. And thus they labored with all diligence according to the commandments of the Lord of the vineyard, even until the bad had been cast away out of the vineyard, and the Lord had preserved unto himself that the trees had become again the natural fruit, and they became like unto one body. In other words, one people of God, and that would be a people called Zion, right? People of Zion are one, one in mind and one heart. No poor among them, and so forth. And the fruits were equal, and the Lord of the vineyard had preserved unto himself the natural fruit, which was most precious unto him from the beginning. From the beginning, or from, you know, from the very time that, you might say, from the beginning before the foundation of the earth, he had planned all of this. And in the end, it brings forth fruit most precious. And came to pass that when the Lord of the vineyard saw that his fruit was good, that his vineyard was no more corrupt, he called up his servants and said unto them, Behold, for this last time you have nourished my vineyard, and thou beholdest that I have done according to my will, and I have preserved the natural fruit that is good, even like it was in the beginning. And blessed art thou, because ye have been diligent in laboring with me in my vineyard, and have kept my commandments, and have brought forth unto me again the natural fruit, that my vineyard is no more corrupted, and the bad is cast away. Behold, ye shall have joy with me because of the fruit of my vineyard. What he said to the three Nephites, your joy will be full even as his joy was full. For behold, of course, they were translated beings, and so, so are these. For behold, for a long time will I lay up the fruit of my vineyard unto mine own self against the season which speedily cometh. 
So what you, what you really see is going on here is that the wild branches don't survive. There might be some that bring forth tame fruit that are not so bad that they're cut off and cast into fire. But as the scripture says, the Lord says, that the Gentiles who repent become numbered among the house of Israel. So they become part of the natural branches. And then you have these servants. And where do they come from? Well, those servants come out also of, of the Gentiles, as we see in just a moment. They are of the Gentiles from the assimilated lineages of Ephraim. Because Ephraim's role is the birthright tr- role, and that is to be a savior to his brethren, as Joseph was in Egypt during the seven years' famine. So some of us have to measure up and become these servants. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. Out of this church have to come these servants, all 144,000 of them, and possibly others. And they're not from the ten lost tribes who are still in the lost and fallen state. So we may be of Ephraim, but we also have other lineages. But it's also a way of organizing the kingdom as Jesus appointed his 12 apostles to be judges over the 12 tribes of Israel. So they were not of the 12 tribes. By birth, they were of the Jews. So it was a way of organizing his kingdom. Uh, in the scriptures, they're called high priests, in the book of Revelation, I mean in the uh, Doctrine and Covenants, section 77, I think. They're called uh, saints of the most high God in the book of Daniel, servants of, servants of the most high God in the book of Revelation, and what other uh, saviors on Mount Zion in the book of Daniel. And for the last time have I nourished my vineyard and pruned it and dug about it and dunged it. So he does everything to nurture his vineyard through his servants. He does it, but really it's the servants who are performing all the work. And that's us. Wherefore, I will lay up unto my own self of the fruit for a long time according to that which I have spoken. He does exactly what he says. He's conceded from the beginning. It's his plan. So if we want to be part of this, we have to follow his plan, not our own, and just not assume that, oh, we're just going to drift into Zion from here. Oh, really? I don't think so. And when the time cometh that evil fruit shall again come into my vineyard, which would be the end, end of the world, when the vineyard changes from a terrestrial glory to a celestial glory, then will I cause the good and the bad to be gathered, and the good will I preserve unto myself, and the bad will I cast into its own place, and we know where that is, in hell, and then cometh the season and the end, and my vineyard will I cause to be burned with fire. And that's when the earth becomes a sea of glass, celestial glory, and those who inhabit it will dwell among everlasting burnings, just like the Lord God does. Any questions? So, this period of time that they're growing together is the millennium, according to that? The period of time that they're growing together and bringing forth good fruit is the time of the millennium? That they're allowed to go together until he says, until the end when the vineyard is burned with fire. Oh, you're talking about during the millennial yeah, age. That's, left, that's being the celestial <clears throat> state. So is that referring to the millennium when... Yes. So, so this, last, this last part here is about the millennial age. At the end of the millennium, yes. That's when the earth is burnt up. And so if you're not celestialized by then, you'll have to go somewhere else. It's like celestial people will have to go somewhere else when the earth is terrestrialized. 
sir. So, will you remind me of the three main branches you referred to? The Jews, the ten tribes, and Lehi's descendants, or those whom the Lord has brought to the Americas, yeah, and promised them this land for their inheritance. The good branch and the bad, the bad overcame the good branch, in a land choice above all other lands. Yes? Well, what are the roots? The branches continually corrupted, the roots never were. Right, the roots, like Jesus said, um, I'm the vine, you're the branches. So um, we see that also, which in a moment we'll see Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, where the stem of Jesse, which is the trunk, is Christ. So he's, he's, the, he's the one nourishing, doing all the nourishing. All good, all blessings come from God through Christ. So Paul is now speaking to the Gentiles. He's the apostle of the Gentiles. The gospel has turned after Peter's dream, when he was told to eat the unclean things, the unkosher things. The gospel turned to the Gentiles when the house of Israel rejected it. And so the Gentiles are kind of get heady, you know. They, they start looking down their noses at the Jews because now they've inherited. So pride sets in and conceit. And that's part of the problem with the apostasy of the Gentiles. They think that they stand on their own merits. and They don't. They stand on the merits of God's people. Yes, they have temporarily apostatized, but the gospel is their blessing, not that of the Gentiles. So Paul says, have they stumbled, the Jews, because they rejected Christ, that they should fall? God forbid. Rather, through their fall, salvation has come to the Gentiles, provoking them to jealousy, provoking the Jews to jealousy. So the Jews rejected it, the Lord took it to the Gentiles, many of whom are assimilated the sentence of Israel, as I mentioned. Now, if their fall, the Jews' fall, enriches the world, and their loss, the, the enriching of the Gentiles, how much more shall their, shall their consummation be? Or how much more shall their consummation, or their fullness, the King James translates. Consummation is when things come to a head. When the Lord finishes his plan, his plan is to restore the house of Israel even though they apostatized for a time and the gospel went to the Gentiles. So I speak to you Gentiles for being the apostle of the Gentiles I magnify my office. If by any means I might induce those of my flesh, the Jews, to emulate you and save some of them. So in other words, when the, when the Jews see the Spirit of God come down upon the Gentiles and they're bringing forth good fruit and the Jews see that he might he thinks, well, maybe they'll be jealous of what they see and want to know all, all about that and also accept the gospel. So he, he can save some of them through the, the, the example of the Gentiles. For if they're casting away when the Jews were ejected, is the reconciliation of the world, especially when the Romans took you know, Jerusalem and exiled the Jews, if they're casting away is the reconciliation of the world, that is, of the Gentiles or Anybody who'd like to come into the gospel can come now. Now that's gone to the Gentiles. What will their receiving be, or receiving back be, when the Jews come back, or the house of Israel in general, but life from the dead? Life from the dead is resurrection or regeneration. And that's a reference to the restitution of all things, the, time, the times of refreshing that the apostles look forward to. When there is regeneration of our physical bodies, and we'll 
we will grow young again. The renewing of the flesh spoken of. For, or translation, which is the same thing, or the consummation, the, yeah, the end product of the renewing of the flesh is to be translated. For if the first fruit is holy, the trunk is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So, so because these, these were natural branches, they were cut off and cast away, yes, but they really were the good fruit. I mean, the good, the natural branches. And so there was, they had merit. And the Lord is not just going to forget about them, as we saw in Zenos' allegory. They'll be given second chances and third chances, if necessary. And if some of the branches are broken off, the Jews or the house of Israel, and you, being a wild olive tree, are grafted in among them, or wild branches of the olive tree, are grafted in among them, and with them partake of the root and fatness of the olive tree, don't boast against the branches. For if you boast, you aren't bearing the root, but the root bears you, right? It's like the Gentiles taking strength into themselves and becoming prideful. You might say, well, then the branches were broken off that I might be, graft- that I might be grafted in. Yes, because of their unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Remember that the Lord appears to his people, unlike his manifestation to the Gentiles, which is always through the Holy Ghost. He does not manifest himself to the Gentiles, not until they're completely cleansed of their iniquity. Then he may manifest. But then they're not called Gentiles anymore either. They're called sanctified ones or saints. So... They stand by faith because the Holy Ghost, he manifests himself to the Gentiles through the, through the Holy Ghost. So it's by faith that they're part of this tree now. Don't be haughty, but fear God. For if God did not spare the natural branches, watch out in case he doesn't spare you too. And indeed he does not. As we saw in Zenos' allegory, eventually those bitter branches are cut out and thrown in the fire. And only the good branches were kept and became part of the tree. Consider then the goodness and the severity of God, or in other words, mercy and justice, on those who fell, severity or justice, but toward you, goodness or mercy. That is, if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you too will be cut off. Of course, the word cut off is a phrase that appears all through our scriptures to denote an end time scenario as well, where we're cut off, or many of us will be cut off. 3 Nephi 21, those to whom the servant brings forth the words of Christ, which are on the large plates of Nephi, and who, dis, you know, who disbelieve them, they're cut off among the people of the covenants, from us. And they too, the Jews, if they don't remain unbelieving, will be grafted back in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you, being cut up from, a, from an olive tree that is wild by nature, was grafted unnaturally or contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more will these, who are the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. That's one of the mysteries of God. What is that mystery? The mystery is how he makes the gospel available worldwide. So he turns evil to good. When his people apostatize, the natural branches apostatize, he turns that evil to good to benefit the Gentiles, all the people that are out there. Anybody can now come into the gospel. And that's why we send our missionaries out today, to convert the world if possible the Gentiles. In case, being wise, you become conceited. That a <clears throat> so he's saying, a partial blindness has happened or occurred to Israel until the consummation or the fullness of the Gentiles has come about, has come in. 
So there comes a time when the Gentiles have been given a chance and another chance, and if they apostatize, it's over. There is a consummation. There is a resolution. There is a cutoff point, and it's too late for them. If you're not a savior on, you know, if you're not a savior of men, the DNC, which we'll quote next time, if you're not a savior of men, you'll be a salt as left at savior. So this blindness remains on the house of Israel. Yes, there might be a few who, who get it, as we've seen up till now, but they will come in en masse. The Jews, the ten tribes, Lehi's descendants, will come in en masse by the millions, all at once. When that cutoff point has been reached and the servant comes along and those other servants are called to the task and graft them in when the Gentiles apostatize. Kind of like when the Nephites apostatized and the Lamanites became more faithful than the Nephites. You'll see that scenario repeated in the end time. And we'll leave it at that and take a five-minute break. Right, so just a little background on Ephraim and the Gentiles. Some of these are scriptures we've read before, but we'll just rehearse them a little bit. Where, where Jacob is laying his right hand on Ephraim, the younger son of Joseph, his left hand on Manasseh. And uh, when Joseph saw it, it's, it's, it displeased him. So he held up his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's hand, head to Manasseh's. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this is the firstborn. Put your right hand on him on his head but his father refused and said I know it my son I know it he too will become a people and he too will be great but truly his younger brother will be greater than he and his seed or offspring will become the consummation of the Gentiles or the fullness of the Gentiles so there we have that expression we have four times in the scriptures fullness or the consummation of the Gentiles we saw it in Romans 11 we see it here and we'll see it in 1 Nephi 15 and 3 Nephi 16, I think it is. DNC 109. This, this shows that Joseph Smith understood that. The Kirtland Temple dedicatory prayer, he said, unto us who are identified with the Gentiles. And then Ephraim in Hosea chapter 7, verse 8, has assimilated among the nations or the Gentiles. Ephraim is a half-baked pancake. Because he's assimilated into the Gentiles, he's half and half. That's why Ephraim goes two ways, or the Gentiles go two ways. They'll go the way of the Gentile, or they'll go the way of the house of Israel. And we'll see that next time when we talk about the Gentiles going two ways. And then Nephi says, My father spake much concerning the Gentiles and also concerning the house of Israel, that they should be, should be compared to an olive tree, whose branches should be broken off and should be scattered upon all the face of the earth. Wherefore he said, It must needs be that we should be led with one accord into the land of promise, unto the fulfilling of the Lord, word of the Lord, that we should be scattered upon all the face of the earth. And after the house of Israel should be scattered, they should be gathered together again, or in fine, after the Gentiles had received the fullness of the gospel, the natural branches of the olive tree or the remnants of the house of Israel should be grafted in or come to a knowledge of the true Messiah, their Lord and their Redeemer. So the house of Israel goes everywhere and assimilates some of the 10% of every generation always seems to assimilate into the Gentiles. So now we have a situation today after how many thousand years, two and a half thousand years, where the house of Israel, uh, nobody could really say perhaps that they're pure Gentile. Maybe some can, I'm not sure. But they're among us too. The assimilated lineages of Israel are everywhere too now. First Nephi 15, 
Behold, I say to you that the house of Israel is compared to an olive tree by the Spirit of the Lord which was in our Father. And behold, are we not broken off from the house of Israel? Are we not a branch of the house of Israel? Now the thing which our Father meaneth concerning the grafting in of the natural branches through the fullness of the Gentiles. There's that expression again. Through the consummation of the Gentiles. And I think who asked me, where do you think we are? Is the consummation of the fullness happened yet? And I think it has. I think we're, we're right there at the cusp where the times of the Gentiles are at an end and the gospel is going to turn to the house of Israel very, very quickly. So in the latter days, or in that end time, really, when our seed shall have dwindled in unbelief for the space of many years and many generations after the Messiah shall be manifest in body unto the children of men, then shall the fullness of the gospel of the Messiah come unto the Gentiles and from the Gentiles unto the remnant of our seed. Well, specifically those servants who do the grafting in. Those are also Gentile servants of the Zenos' allegory. Through the fullness of the Gentiles, or the seed of Ephraim that assimilated into the Gentiles. Remember, Jacob's right hand on Ephraim's head. His offspring will become the, the fullness or the consummation of the Gentiles. So it's a specific category of Gentiles, us Ephraimites. And we're the ones who bring it back to them if we indeed are among those saviors who do that, or those servants whom this other servant calls to do the grafting. And at that day shall the remnant of our seed or offspring know that they are of the house of Israel, because they lost sight of that, and that they are of the covenant people of the Lord. And then shall they come and know and come to the knowledge of their forefathers and also to the knowledge of the gospel of their Redeemer, which was ministered unto their fathers by him, by, the, by Christ. And he, you know, he, he went to the ten tribes as well. He said that, other sheep have I. He came to the Nephites and to the Jews. By him, wherefore, they shall come to the knowledge of their Redeemer and the very points of his doctrine. And this is an issue because, we'll see next time, things get muddled after a while. Why is the tree bringing forth so much evil fruit? Well, partly because of so many precepts of men. Because precepts of men, when you act on them, can't bring forth good fruit. And that's part of the problem, 2 Nephi 28. So at some point, those true points of his doctrine are going to be defined and clarified. And when they are, then things can happen. Then the house of Israel can be attain the true knowledge, the fullness of the gospel, as it really is, without precepts of men, that they may know how to come unto him and be saved and exalted. And then at that day, will they not rejoice and give praise unto their everlasting God, their rock and their salvation? Yet yeah, that day, because they rejected their rock before, remember? Remember when Moses smote the rock? That was symbolic of the house of Israel rejecting the Lord, who is the rock, who brought forth water, the waters of life, of salvation. At that day, will they not receive the strength and nourishment from the true vine? Yea, will they not come unto the true fold of God? the one fold, the people of Zion. Behold, I say unto you, yea, they shall be remembered again among the house of Israel. They shall be grafted in, being a natural branch of the olive tree, into the true olive tree. And this is what our Father meaneth, and he meaneth that it will not come to pass until the, after they are scattered by the Gentiles. You know, at the time of Joseph Smith, they were not fully scattered by the Gentiles yet. Wounded knee had not yet happened. Remember that? That was still going on, the scattering of the, of the, of the uh, Lamanites by the Gentiles. So it's, it's all related to this end time, to this end scenario before the coming of the Lord. And it shall come by way of the Gentiles. Well, by way of those servants 
whom the other servant calls, that the Lord may show forth his power unto the Gentiles, because this links this word power links this whole scenario to what's called the day of power. Look up the, the day of power in the scriptures, and there's this end time scenario when the house of Israel is, is restored, and and the wicked are destroyed from the earth. The whole great and abominable church and all those who re- represent the wicked are destroyed, thrown into the fire, and so forth. He may show forth his power unto the Gentiles for the very cause that he shall be rejected of the Jews or of the house of Israel. Wherefore our Father has not spoken of our seed alone, but of also of all the house of Israel, including the ten tribes and the Jews, not just Lehi's descendants, pointing to the covenant which should be fulfilled in the latter days or end time, which covenant the Lord made to our father Abraham, saying, In thy seed or offspring shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. And that's what Paul says, they're blessed because of the scattering of the house of Israel throughout the earth, so that all can come into the covenant. First Nephi 13, The time cometh that he shall manifest himself unto all nations, Christ, the Lord, Jehovah, both unto the Jews and also unto the Gentiles. And after he has manifested himself unto the Jews and also unto the Gentiles, then shall he manifest himself unto the Gentiles and also unto the Jews. And the last shall be first and the first shall be last. So did you get it, what it was saying? He manifests himself to the Jews, they reject it, Paul takes it to the Gentiles, then there was a restoration through the prophet Joseph Smith, so it's again manifested to the Gentiles a second time. And then after that, when they reject it again, then it goes back to the Jews finally, or to the house of Israel as a whole. So we don't have a leg to stand on. <laughs> Unless, right? Unless we're part of those servants. Then come, this is from the prophet Ether in, in the book of Ether, who also saw right to the end of time, from that ancient time, just after the Babylonian, after the Tower of Babel situation, and he sees way into the end, and they just thought, this guy is a nut. He's, who is he talking about? He said, Then cometh the new Jerusalem, and blessed are they who dwell therein. For it is they whose garments are made white through the blood of the Lamb. They are they. And so can you imagine these people who never heard of such things? Garments made white through the blood of the Lamb. <laughs> Give me a break, guys. <laughs> you know? Yes, that's exactly how it is, through the atonement of Christ. But as people who don't know how the atonement would work, this would really be strange talk indeed. And they are they who are numbered among the remnant of the seed of Joseph, who are of the house of Israel. And then also cometh the Jerusalem of old. So there's two Jerusalems. And the inhabitants thereof, blessed are they, for they have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And they are they who are scattered and gathered from the four quarters of the earth and from the north countries, and are partakers from the north countries because the ten tribes were exiled to the north countries, right? Which eventually spread into eastern Europe. And are partakers of the fulfilling of the covenant which God made with their father Abraham. And when these things come, bring us to pass the scripture which says, There are they who were first who shall be last, and there are they who were last who shall be first. So in the end, the Jews come, well, all the house of Israel come back into the covenant. End time restoration of Israel. This is uh, Jacob now referring back to Zenos's allegory of the olive tree. This, this uh, passage is from Jacob 6. Now behold, my brethren, as I said to you that I would prophesy, so he himself adds a little prophecy here concerning Zenos' allegory. 
this is my prophecy, that the things which this prophet Zena spake concerning the house of Israel, in which he likened them unto a tame olive tree, must surely come to pass. And the day that he shall set his hand again the second time to recover his people is the day, even the last time, that the servants of the Lord shall go forth in his power, the day of power, to nourish and prune his vineyard. And after that, the end soon cometh. And how blessed are they who have labored diligently in his vineyard, those servants. And how cursed are they who shall be cast out into their own place. And the world shall be burned with fire. So there you have it. But what is of interest to us here is that this happens when the Lord shall set again his hand the second time, which is a quote from Isaiah chapter 11, as we see here. And that day the sprig of Jesse, who is that servant, a Davidic descendant, who stands for an ensign to the people. So he is the ensign. As we, in our Isaiah classes, we've gone through this many times. Shall be sought by the nations. Which nations? Well, the nations of the house of Israel. And his rest shall be glorious. In that day will my Lord again raise his hand. And this is, the King James interprets this or translates this as the second time. He will raise his hand again the second time. Something like that. He'll set his hand again the second time. This is where that appears in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11. Now the hand is also the ensign because you see here this anonymous parallel in verses 11 and 12. When he raises his hand, then Israel gathers. Same thing in verse 12. He raises the ensign and Israel gathers. So the hand is the ensign. But the ensign is the sprig of Jesse, that servant I'm speaking of. To reclaim the remnant of his people, to graft them back into the olive tree, if we're talking about Zenus, who, who shall be left out of Assyria, Egypt, Prathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamat, and the islands of the sea. And he will raise the ensign to the nations, or to the Gentiles. And some, I think it says Goyim, yes, Gentiles. It can be, it's, Goyim can be translated nations or Gentiles. And assemble the exiled of Israel, he will gather the scattered of Judah from the four directions of the earth. That is, the natural branches of the olive tree. Same here, Isaiah 49. I will lift up my hand to the nations, raise my ensign to the peoples, and they will bring your sons in their bosoms and carry your daughters on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, queens your nursing mothers. But who are these? These are the kings and queens of the Gentiles. Lift up my hand to the, na to the nations is to the Gentiles. Again, goyim in Hebrew. So, which means Gentiles as well as nations. So, it is the Gentiles, it's through the fullness of the Gentiles, through the descendants of Ephraim, who are the spiritual kings and queens of the Gentiles, not the political kings and queens. From Isaiah 43, do not fear for I am with you. When God is with us, that is when things get done, right? That's the power of God, the day of power. I am with you, I will bring you your offspring from the east, gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give up, because they held in bondage there. To the south withhold not, because somebody's trying to do the same thing there. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the end of the earth, all who are called by my name, that is, those who have converted to the gospel now, whom I formed, molded, and wrought for my own glory. The forming, the molding, and the rock, the reeking, I guess, um, that is the process of recreation. The Lord recreates them when they accept, when they believe in Christ, come into his gospel and are endowed with his spirit and empowered to keep progressing spiritually, the Lord keeps recreating them 
every time they ascend a spiritual level, they're recreated closer to his image and likeness. And that is, so these sons and daughters whom these kings and queens bring are the elect of God that they gather from throughout the earth after they have accepted the gospel, believed in Christ, and they have been created new creatures in Christ. Isaiah 60, Arise, shine, your light has dawned. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Although darkness covers the earth and the thickness of the people is upon you, Jehovah will shine over you. His glory shall be visible. And it goes on. Nations will come to your light, their kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. They have all assembled to come to you. Your son shall arrive from afar. Your daughters shall return to your side. These are, again, the kings and queens of the Gentiles who bring the sons and daughters of God to Zion, to the old Jerusalem or to the new Jerusalem, all during a time of destruction. You have deliverance and destruction going on at the same time. You have the grafting of the natural branches back into the olive tree at the same time that the wild branches, or the bitter branches, are being cut off and thrown in the fire. 57, 1 and 2, we've quoted this a number of times. The righteous disappear, that's the elect of God. No man gives it a thought. That's either when they come in the exodus or going to call out. The godly are gathered out, but no one perceives that from impending calamity the righteous are withdrawn. So they'll be there one day, gone the next. And the neighbors may think they, maybe they went on a vacation or something. Well, they don't see them anymore. They who walk uprightly shall attain peace, the peace of, of God, and shall rest in their beds. Well, maybe stretchers or you know, uh, camping gear or something, but yes, beds. Second Nephi 10. Thus says the Lord God, when the day cometh that they shall, speaking of the house of Israel, that they believe in me, that I am Christ, then I have covenant with their fathers, that they shall be restored in the flesh upon the earth, unto the lands of their inheritance. So they are regathered, natural branches regathered to their promised lands. And it shall come to pass that they shall be gathered in from their long dispersion, from the isles of the sea, and from the four parts of the earth. And the nations of the Gentiles, but remember that specific category of saviors among the Gentiles, the kings and queens, shall be great in the eyes of me, said the God, in carrying them forth to the lands of their inheritance. Yea, the kings of the Gentiles shall be nursing fathers unto them, and their queens shall become nursing mothers, wherefore the promises of the Lord are great unto the Gentiles. For he hath spoken it, who can dispute? The promises of God are great to the Gentiles. What would a house of Israel person say? Really? Those guys? They were idolaters, aren't they? So, no, God has spoken it. So let's not dispute it. And that's, that goes along with the mercy of God to the Gentiles, which is another phrase that is often used. And they shall believe in me. This is now the Lord speaking of the Jews. Not the Jews that he comes to on the Mount of Olives, as we mentioned before. Those are the religious Jews, the house of David. But Zechariah makes a distinction between them and the house of Judah, the Jews as a whole, the main category of Jews. So these are the ones that are now secular Jews, but they're going to believe first. And they shall believe in me that I'm Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and shall pray unto the Father in my name. Then shall their watchmen, who are these watchmen? These are these same servants that are raised up to, to graft in the natural branches. Then shall their watchmen lift up their voice, and with voice together shall they sing. For they shall see eye to eye. Why? Because they've had, you know, they've had this apocalyptic vision. They, have, they can see through the portals. They, they are shown the whole picture. So they all see the same thing. So they don't argue with each other. They're all, seen, they're all on the same page. Then will the Father gather them together again. 
and give unto them Jerusalem for the land of their inheritance, the old Jerusalem. Then shall they break forth in joy, sing together you waste places. It's not quoting from Isaiah, chapter 52. You waste places of Jerusalem for the Father, that's not what 52 says, but it's a slight variation. For the Father hath comforted his people, he hath redeemed Jerusalem. The Father has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all nations, that all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of the Father, and the Father and I are one. Isaiah says Jehovah, not the Father, but the Father and I are, and I are one, he says. And so this happens when the Father makes bare his holy arm in the eyes of all nations. That's the coming of the servant, who's one of the two arms of God. And he's revealed or made bare. And that's the day of power when God reaches forth his, his arm to intervene in, in humanity's affairs and everything suddenly starts to take a new turn. And then shall be brought to pass that which is written the beginning of chapter 52 of Isaiah, Awake, awake again, and put on thy strength of Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments of Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth there shall no more come unto thee, into thee the uncircumcised and unclean. Shake thyself from the dust. Arise, sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. This is the Book of Mormon quoting the King James Version. As most of the Isaiah passages in the Book of Mormon use the King James Version. And, and why the King James, why not translate? That's another question entirely, which we can talk about someday. If we have time at the end of this class. Isaiah's and Ezekiel's olive tree allegories. Now, they too have uh, allegories. Isaiah has a little mini allegory, so to speak. A shoot will spring up from the stock of Jesse, and a branch from its graft bear fruit. The King James has a slightly different translation. This shoot is a wild shoot, so it is symbolic of the wild branches that are grafted into the olive tree. Will spring up from the stock of Jesse, the trunk of Jesse, or the stem of Jesse, says the King James. Now, such a shoot is called a water sprout. It goes straight up. We've discussed this in this class before. And it's one of those things you cut off in the spring because it just takes all this power to itself and sucks up the juice of the tree and grows really big but bears no fruit. So it's symbolic of the wild branches. And a branch from this graft bear fruit. But when that shoot is big enough to sustain a graft, you cut it off at the root. You cut it off by the, close to the trunk. And you can make a natu- natural branch, a little natural branch, a, gra- a sprig or a, a root, they call it in the King James, and make a little split in there, plug it in, bind it up, and it will take the nourishment from the tree and bear, b- become a natural tree again and bear natural fruit and bring forth natural fruit. And this happens all the time in horticulture. So if that's all you've got left is just this one of these water sprouts, don't cut it off this time. Keep it. and let. So what does that show you? It shows you that that water sprout is necessary, the wild branch is necessary to keep the tree alive, right? Because the tree, the tree is not bearing fruit at the end of chapter, previous chapter 10. It's not bearing fruit, so... But it is that very wild shoot when it's big enough to sustain the graft that nourishes the natural branch that's grafted in. So that, that shoot was important because the rest of the tree is no good. So, but that shoot is alive, so it sustains that graft. But the top is cut off and thrown in the fire. So there you have the saviors on, on the one hand, the servants of, who do the grafting. They sustain that graft, the natural branch. So it's the same allegory as Zenus. Zenus just expanded the whole thing. 
and made it bigger. Or Isaiah just encapsulated it. Not sure which, which came first. And then DNC, which talks about this uh, allegory of Isaiah. Who is the stem of Jesse or the trunk or the, or the stock of Jesse? There it is. Or the stock of Jesse. Who is the stem of Jesse or the stock or the trunk spoken of in, in da 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 da? Of Isaiah, verily thus saith the Lord, it is Christ. Okay, so that goes along with Christ is the vine and we are the branches. Christ is the, the, the roots of the trunk of the vine. And from it come the branches. Same, same principle. It is Christ, or Jehovah, in other words. What is the rod spoken of in the first verse? Da, 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 da. It should come from the stem of Jesse. It is a servant in the hands of Christ, who is partly the son of Jesse, as well as of Ephraim, or of the house of Joseph, on whom there was laid much power. Now what's going on here is the principle of the one and the many. And the principle of the one and the many is that there is a person who also represents the collective. And we see that the tree as a whole is at first not bringing forth good fruit. That's the collective, right? But there is also the person, Christ, from which Christianity came about. Christianity that apostatizes and doesn't bear good fruit. Then comes the wild shoot. It's also a person. It's um, a servant in the hands of Christ who is partly the son of Jesse as well as Ephraim with the house of Joseph under whom there is laid much power. Now that would be Joseph Smith. But he also represents the collective. And that collective is what? The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The principle of the one and the many. And the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is represented by this water sprout, which does not itself bear fruit. And that's what Zenos saw. It bears fruit, but it's all kinds of wild fruit in Zenos' allegory. But there is a direct correspondence here. It's not good fruit. And so what is the root of Jesse spoken of in the 10th verse of chapter 11, which is the tender phase, the sprig of Jesse that we read a minute ago. The sprig of Jesse is, is the root. The King James translates it root. It can also be translated graft. What is the graft or the root or the sprig of Jesse spoken of in the 10th chapter, the 10th verse? It Thus says the Lord is the descendant of Jesse as well as of Joseph, unto whom rightly belongs the priesthood and the keys of the kingdom for an ensign for the gathering of my people in the last days. Because it's said in, in verse 10 that this sprig of Jesse stands for an ensign to the people. Right? You read that. So he is that ensign. But in the book of Isaiah, there are two ensigns. The king of Assyria, the Antichrist, is also an ensign. Two ensigns. One rallies the wicked against Israel. The other rallies the righteous to Zion. But notice the difference in wording between the two servants here, between Joseph Smith and the end-time servant. Now, it's not John the Revelator, as some say. That's ridiculous. John the Revelator has already served his mission upon the earth. He's not going to be marred again because he's translated. And translated beings can't get marred again. They cannot be physically hurt. So, and um, John has anyway already been taken up to God and to his throne. So, but notice the, the different lineages here. Joseph Smith is of Ephraim, of the house of Joseph, but he's partly the son of Jesse. And then Jesse is a code name, too, so guess who? And then you have the root, or the, the graft, or the sprig, is a descendant of Jesse. He's mainly of Jesse, but also of Joseph. So the one has more of Judah, and the other has more of Joseph. The two main lineages of the house of Israel. So, 
we'll come in a minute to um, to Ezekiel 37 where that makes more sense but to him rightly belongs the priesthood and the keys of the kingdom for an ensign for the gathering of my people in the last day so this is when the house of Israel is gathered when that servant that final servant does the gathering and he with the help of those other servants as we read 37 now we have a really great precept of men here <laughs> that we believe and it's even in some books that we have and it's a great example of a precept of men that is kind of misleading a little bit the word of Jehovah came to me again saying son of man take one tree the King James land says a stick it doesn't say stick it says tree it's it can also mean wood but tree is more particular because every olive tree in the Middle East practically and throughout most of the southern Europe as well where you have olive orchards olive trees have two main trunks because they spring from two grafts that were grafted in when they were little. And they go into one tree, they fuse into one tree. But this makes all kinds of sense. And don't we carve names on trees anyway? Take one tree and write in for Judah and the people of Israel, his companions. That's the house of Judah. His companions will be the tribes of Judah, Benjamin, and Levi. Then take another tree and write on it for Joseph, the tree of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel, his companions. That would be the ten tribe kingdom. And join them together into one tree, and they will be one in your hand. And when the people of your... Instead of running to conclusion and just putting our own interpretation on this, as some have done, why don't we just read on a little bit and see what it actually says. When the people of your nation say to you, will you not show us what you mean by this? Tell them, thus says the Lord Jehovah. I will take the tree of Joseph that is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel, his companions, Ephraim was the leading tribe of the ten tribes. And I will put them with him, with the tree of Judah, and will make them one tree, and they will be one in my hand. And the trees on which you write will be one in your hand before their eyes. Now, this goes back to the division of Israel, of the house of Israel, or the nation of Israel, into two houses or kingdoms. The ten tribe, northern kingdom, the southern kingdom of Judah. When Jeroboam, servant Solomon broke away with the ten tribes and set up idols in the northern kingdom, right? And ever since then, Israel has been divided into two. They never have been united since then. But in the days of Saul and David, when David was uh, appointed king, the ten tribes were still loyal to Saul. And so they already had this division then of ten tribes and three tribes. Whereas the house of Joseph split into two tribes, right? Joseph and Manasseh, making a total of 13. Whereas the Levites were scattered among all the tribes. So King David, after reigning for seven years and did a really great job, then the other tribes, ten tribes, came back to him and said, okay, you've done a great job, we want to be part of this. So they became one nation under King David. And so the hand of the Lord, as we saw, is that Davidic servant. So he's the one in the end time who finally reunites the two houses of Israel. Does that make sense? The servant is the hand of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 11 and elsewhere. So they will become one tree again when the servant begins his mission and the other servants assist him in grafting in the natural branches. They'll all become one people again, one people of Zion. I mean, does this allegory make sense or what? 
why do we put this other weird interpretation on it? That, that it's the stick, is the record. And say unto them, Thus is my Lord Jehovah. See, I will take the people of Israel from among the heathen where they have gone, and will gather them from every direction and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel. This is still the explanation, right? And one king will be king to them all, at the latter day David. And there will be no more two nations, nor will they be divided into two kingdoms anymore at all, nor will they defile themselves anymore with their idols or their abominations, which caused all of these divisions and curses, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will save them out of all their habitations in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them, purify them, and they will be my people and I will be their God. That is the covenant formula. My people, your God. David, my servant, will be king over them and all will have one shepherd. This is not Christ. If you're still in doubt about that, look at all the, the passages that in the Old Testament talk about the David. And look at what Joseph Smith said about it and what um, Orson Hyde's dedicatory prayer was on the Mount of Olives of the Holy Land. The Davidic servant restores Israel temporally and is not Christ who, who um, atones for Israel, who saves Israel spiritually. The one is a temporal Messiah, the other. In context, unless you want to take things horribly out of context, there's only one way you can interpret the David. And that's another precept of men. You believe all of these wild things without actually looking at what the text says. And all will have one shepherd. They will also walk in my judgments and preserve my statutes or the commandments of God and perform them. They will dwell in the land I gave Jacob my servant in which your fathers dwelt. In other words, back in the old promised land. And they will dwell in it, not the current situation in the promised land, by the way, but a great final scenario still to happen. They will dwell in it, they and their children and their children's children forever. And my servant David will be a prince forever. A prince, not Jehovah, not their spiritual savior. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, an everlasting covenant. An everlasting covenant is an unconditional covenant that God makes with people who prove themselves loyal to him. And after they've proven themselves loyal to him, he makes an unconditional covenant with them. It's an everlasting blessing forever, rules without end. And I will establish them and multiply them and place my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. That will be in the temple, in the old Jerusalem. My tabernacle also will be with them Indeed, I will be their God, and they will be my people. The covenant formula. Then the heathen shall know that I, Jehovah, sanctify Israel, and my sanctuary will be in their midst forever. Because Second Nephi 29, 8 says, The testimony of two nations is a witness <coughs> unto you that I am God. So if you're talking about a record, you know, two sticks being a record. The testimony of two nations is a witness unto you. The, tri the ten tribes have their records. We know about that. Scriptures say that. And the Nephites will have the records of the Jews, and the Jews will have the records of the Nephites and of the ten tribes, and it will all be, become one, one record, or one collection of records. That I remember one nation like unto another, wherefore I speak the same words unto one nation like unto another, as we saw in Jesus' teaching to the Nephites, that are very comparable with his teaching to the Jews. And when two nations shall run together, the testimony of the two nations shall run together also. So don't put the cart before the horse and say, when these two records come together, then they will come, the nations will come. No. It says, when the two nations run together, their records will come together. In that order. Then we have the two olive trees or the two witnesses. They're also called olive trees. From Zechariah 4. 
The angel who spoke with me came again and woke me up like a man woken up from sleep. Does that sound familiar? Read that in Spencer's book, Visions of Glory. I know people personally that's happened to. And he said to me, what do you see? Because you always have a guide, right? You have a guide take you around and show you things. I said, I look and I see a candlestick, all of gold, with a bowl on top, and on it seven lamps, like a menorah, right? The seven branch candlestick, with seven conduits for the seven lamps on top. So the, the conduits, they are fed olive oil. So the, to keep the, uh, the wicks burning. And two olive trees next to it, one on the bowl's right and one on the left. So I replied, said the angel speaking with me, what are these, my lord? And he's a little hesitant to give the answer right away because he wants him to figure it out himself if he can, right? And the angel who spoke with me replied and said, don't you know what these are? I said, no, my lord. Then he replied and said, this is the word of Jehovah to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says Jehovah of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You will become a plain. You will bring forth its headstone with shouts of grace. Grace be to it. Oh, what's going on here? Okay, we have the Jews that came back from Babylon, which is called the Second Temple Period. And it took them a while to get their act together. But under Ezra and Nehemiah, they finally did. And Zerubbabel was a descendant of David, who, and Joshua the high priest was another, um, they were they assisted in this work, and Zerubbabel was was helpful in building the new temp, the second temple, a much smaller temple than the one of Solomon, by the way. So in this context, uh, there are these two individuals, Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel. So he's he's talking about you know this second this first restoration. But this first restoration of the temple when the Jews came back from Babylon is a type and shadow of the end time restoration as well. Everything is typological in the Hebrew scriptures. You get that by now, right? Not logical. Everything happens as a type and shadow of some future or end time event specifically. So, so what happened then is going to kind of repeat itself in our day. And this great mountain, in his day it was those who opposed the work were... Um, like in Jeremiah, Babylon is called the Great Mountain, and which was a world power at one time. And in their day, it was Persia, because it was Cyrus the Persian who let the Jews come back and build this temple, right? But he had a lot of opposition, so he he said he'll succeed. He's going to bring forth the headstone eventually and get the job done. And the word of Jehovah came to me again, saying. As the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of his house, so his hands will finish it. Then will you know that Jehovah of hosts has sent me to you, for who has despised the day of small things? So what is this day of small things? Okay, so many Jews, when they came back from Babylon, they had so little resources. It was kind of like the time of the restoration for the prophet Joseph Smith. They had very few resources took a long time just to build the Kirtland Temple, didn't it? And a lot of sacrifice, even the Nauvoo Temple. A lot of hard labor, opposition from the mobs, uh, things going wrong, and it took a lot of devotion by people. And it just didn't seem to be blossoming at all. So that was the case then. So what happens in the end time is very similar. It's called a day of small things because no grandiose things were happening like the coming out of Egypt and God's power was manifest to a great degree. 
that wasn't happening. It was all seemed to be left to these humble people, these without any great assistance from God. And so it says, Who has despised the day of small things? You guys who are in doubt about this temple being built and finished, you guys are going to get a surprise. They will yet rejoice when they see the plummet in the hands of Zerubbabel, the plummet that's put on the very top. Its seven eyes are the eyes of Jehovah that run to and fro throughout the earth. That's where you have that pyramid thing with the eye at the top, the seer stone. Then I replied and said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right of the candlestick and on his left? And again I spoke to him and said, What are these two olive branches that empty themselves of the, the golden oil through the two gold pipes? So you have these two bowls or trees, and they're symbolic of olive oil coming down through these little pipes to feed these seven candles or these seven lights in the candlestick. So you have on the one hand and on the other. And if you were to say an olive tree that reminds you of the olive tree of the house of Israel with its two main branches, what would you say? Likely those two olive trees, since they're with the two witnesses, are persons, one more or less from the house of Israel and one more or less from the house of Judah. My guess, right? If I was to guess. So he has to ask it twice. And he replied, don't you know what these are? He said, no, that's why I'm asking. Don't you get it? Answer me, please. He said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. So anointed ones are, you know, messiahs, so to speak. They're also messiahs. Of course, all the 144,000 are messiahs, in a way, or saviors on Mount Zion. They're all little Davids, so to speak, as I call them. Now, the same thing in the book of Revelation as in Zechariah 4. Revelation 11, a reed was given me resembling a rod, and the angel stood by me, he too has an angel, arise and measure the temple of God and the angel and those who worship there. But the court outside the temple leave out, don't measure it because it is assigned to the Gentiles. And the holy city they will tread underfoot 42 months. I will empower my two witnesses and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks who stand before the God of all the earth. And if any man hurts them, fire will proceed from their mouths and devour their enemies. They're translated beings. They have that power over the elements. And if any man hurts them, they must be killed in this manner. These, why would they be so cruel as to kill them right on the spot? Because they're fighting against God, basically. Right? When they oppose these two beings, these two persons. And so rather than as Spencer sees in Visions of Glory, rather than let them add to their condemnation and create worse sins that they have to pay for once they get to the other side in their hell, let's just make it short for them. <laughs> Cut it short a little bit and take them out right now. That'd be a kindness to them. They must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut the heavens so that it won't rain during the time of their prophecy. Like Elijah and like Moses and others, or like Enoch, and some have said, well, this must be Elijah and Enoch. But no, they are two people born in this day and age who have to perform their earthly missions on the earth. They have power over the waters to turn them to blood, to smite the earth with all kinds of plagues, as Moses did, as often as they want. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit. Now, this, the Apollon, when the angel in the book of Revelation goes and unlocks the bottomless pit, 
all these hordes of evil spirits come out and run throughout the earth, and then you're going to see some zombies on the earth. <laughs> and you're going to see real evil, like never before on the earth. And one of them in particular who's the ruler, that's the beast, who takes possession of the one on the earth who becomes the beast or the great antichrist, will make war with them and overcome them and slay them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of that, that great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, because of what those names symbolize, where our Lord also was crucified, which was Jerusalem. And those of the peoples, kindreds, tongues, and nations who will be gathered there, because all nations will come to war against Israel at that time, will see their dead bodies for three and a half days and won't let their bodies be buried. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented them who dwell on the earth. While they also prevented the enemies of Israel from destroying utterly the Jewish, the Jewish kingdom, the Jewish nation. Those Jews who were left, not the ones who went into the call-out, because I'm certain that the Jews also will have their call-out of the ones who will be converted first, the house of Judah. And these ones that are protected by that, but the two witnesses will then be the house of David and the house of Jerusalem. But after three and a half days, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of life from God, entered into them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on all those who saw them, and they heard a great voice from heaven telling them, come up here, what are you waiting for? And they ascended to heaven in a cloud while their enemies beheld them, like Jesus ascended to heaven. And that same hour, in that same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell, and the earthquake, 7,000 men were slain, and the rest took fright and gave glory to the God of heaven. So there won't be many people left in Jerusalem at that time. Just some of the uh, House of David, as I mentioned. DNC 77, what is to be understood by the two witnesses in the 11th chapter of Revelation, they are two prophets that are to be raised up to the Jewish nation. Raised up to the Jewish nation in that time, in the, the end time. They don't come back from a former time. At the time of the restoration, restoration of what? The House of Israel, of course. When the Jews go back to Jerusalem, some 14 million of them today now, only about 2 or 3 million are in Israel today, <clears throat> plus the gathering of the 10 tribes to the new Jerusalem, that's part of the restoration of all things. It hasn't happened yet. And to prophesy to the Jews after they are gathered and have built the city of Jerusalem and the land of their fathers, including the temple. Because when Christ comes to the Mount of Olives, where does he go? into the temple that's been built to receive them. And who built that temple? The believing Jews. The ones who believe and call upon the Father in his, in his name, as Jesus says in 3 Nephi. 3 Nephi 15, is it? But not the, the ones to whom he comes on the Mount of Olives. Remember, there are two factions of Jews. And this is from Spencer in Visions of Glory, who actually sees this event happening of the two witnesses. It was this time that the two prophets were called in Zion to go and alter the course of the Jewish people. Now, this is after the New Jerusalem is being built and the temple is there, has been built or being built. I knew who they were at the time but have not retained that memory because a third of what he saw, he says, was taken from his memory. I believe they were members of the Quorum of the Twelve who were then serving in Zion. Maybe, maybe not. I know that they studied their mission via the portal in the temple and were prepared for their mission and their sacrifice. Well, I'm sure they had sacrificed a lot already just to get to that point, right? And they left with great courage, knowing their task was pivotal, that it would cost them their lives. They were ordained by Jesus Christ himself to this great calling before a large assemblage in the temple. 
and then departed from our side through the portal. And here is a great type and shadow of the two witnesses from Alma 16. Thus did Alma and Emelech go forth, and also many more who had been chosen for the work to preach the word throughout all the land, and the establishment of the church became general throughout all the land, in all the regions round about, among all the people of the Nephites. And there was no inequality among them, they all became one. And the Lord did pour out his spirit upon all the face of the land to prepare the minds of the children of men, or to prepare their hearts to receive the word which should be taught among them at the time of his coming. That's his first coming, but this is now going to be the time of his second coming. That they might not be hardened against the word, that they might not be unbelieving but, and go to destruction, which is happening at the same time, but that they might receive the word with joy and as a branch be grafted into the true vine that they might enter into the rest of the Lord their God. That's where it all has to go. And that is it. Thank you for staying the course tonight. This concludes Lecture 20, Allegory of the Olive Tree. Be sure to visit IsaiahExplained.com as well as IsaiahInstitute.com to learn more about Isaiah with Dr. Avraham Giliotti.